Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Bustin' Beaks and Chasing Tales. In this episode, I'm joined by Jacob Russell, a fine turkey hunter who's going to give us a rundown on some of his experiences and run through some questions with me. And he's also going to give us some food plotting tips, as that's what he does for a living. Hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to the Bustin' Beaks and Chasin' Tales podcast. Join us for turkey and deer hunting tips, information, and stories. And now your host, Todd Hogan. Hey, with me on the line tonight is Jacob Russell with The Break TV. How you doing, Jake? I'm good, bud. How you doing? Doing all right. Two reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. One, because you're a phenomenal turkey hunter. And two, because you've got a knowledge of food plots uh, really better than anybody else. I know you're kind of, you and one of my other friends are my go-to guys to ask questions about it. So uh, I'm going to kind of run through some turkey questions for you at the start. And then um, you and I have kind of talked about some um, food plot questions that we're going to kind of go over so you can give guys kind of a some knowledge on, on how to get those going. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you've got a, so we both live in Missouri. You live in Southeast Missouri. I'm kind of in Central East Missouri. Um, you're, you're down in farmland and uh, you actually work in the uh, agricultural industry, right? Yeah. We, uh, work for agricultural, uh, we do custom applicating fertilizer, spraying seed sales, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, we, we kill plants and grow plants for a living. Okay. All right. Nice. <laughs> and you've got a you've got a degree from Southeast Missouri in that, right? Yeah, I got a bachelor's in agribusiness. I graduated back in uh, 08. Okay. All right. Well, you've got more knowledge on this than me. Like I said, I hit you up for stuff a lot. And uh, so anyway, let's um let's start with turkey. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know we were talking earlier. You had a run in in uh, Missouri where you were what six years in a row where you doubled up on birds yeah i had a pretty good streak there for a while and uh you know i i our farm is about an hour west of where i live i i'm just here south of cape Girardeau, and uh we hunt bullinger county a family farm it's uh 243 acres and it's uh about 95 percent woods so it it's hard to pattern birds I use a lot. I run trail cameras basically all year, you know, from watching antlers growing in the summer and then I'll run them till shed season. And then, you know, right now I'm getting ready for the, getting ready for the youth hunt. So I still got, I moved all my cameras around and set them up on where my plots, you know, typically have my birds. And, you know, I, I run recon off of that because if you, if you can't see the birds from, you know, miles out, like some of these flatland guys that, you know, I, I have, uh, the way I walk in along this, uh, our main logging road, you know, there's food plots kind of either on the road or just right off of them. And I can, I can walk in and check a card and see that a bird was there at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, the day before, and there's a bird at the other plot at nine. So I kind of get an idea of how they're traveling and what time they're going to be there. So, if uh if I'm doing some running and gunning and I know that nine o'clock a bird's gonna be in this plot, I can make a move and try to get there before he does and it's been pretty successful doing it that way, but uh it, it's tough. Well, you know, wood birds are it's a it's a different story. Yeah. I, I was gonna ask you, you know, most of the time when I'm hunting birds around here we're set up on the edges of fields. Well if you don't have a whole lot of you know, uh, yeah. field edges or, or, you know, like I said, you said the, the majority of your farm is woodland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just try to pattern with the trail cameras and go from there. Yeah. Our, uh, the biggest field that I have is, uh, it's roughly six acres and it historically, you think that the birds would want to be out in a bigger field, you know, strut zone where you get, you know, where they can be seen they they won't necessarily go to that field till later in the season i uh i killed my second bird last year out of that field and there was almost zero gobbling on that end of the farm like all year and then the very last well the last weekend is when our 
it it was like opening day again. They were all around that field, and it, it there's not a lot of big timber around it. A lot of the bigger timbers on the western end of the farm is where I typically hunt, and it's a lot of logging road, ridge tops. You know, I've got food plots on these ridge tops that they will basically just get in the middle of the logging road, and it's the same thing. You know, they can see 100 and 150 yards, give or take, one direction. So they'll just kind of get in this little junction, and there's three roads that come in. That's where this, that's where my food plot is, where I kill all my turkeys, and it's like a, just a natural strut zone for them. And that it's been successful for me. I killed a lot of birds on that one spot, and they really they just get on that road, and it's kind of what they do. Is just it's a same thing, you know, getting out in the field and where they can be seen, and they can do it from the logging road too. I know um, next weekend is youth season in Missouri. Yeah. You're taking somebody out? Yeah, we uh taking a buddy of mine's daughter. We had a benefit for a, a friend of mine had a pretty bad sickness. We threw, I, uh, auctioned off a, a youth hunt, and a buddy of mine bought it for his daughter. So we, I went out today and pulled cards. I took my kids out. We rode on the ranger and looked at the food plots, checked the cameras, and then I talked to him yesterday and he got his little girl out and patterned her shotgun. And we were texting pictures back and forth and, uh, she's had a few birds on her belt. I think she's 11, 11 or 12. And, uh, you know, I think she's pretty pumped about going it. So we're going to, me and Izzy and Mitch, we're going to try to set up and see if we can't maybe get one on film or, you know, we're going to have a good time regardless sounds cool um have you been out have you heard any gobbling yet i have not been out yet uh my buddy's got ground right there's one piece of property in between us and he was out i believe uh friday morning it was windy and he, he didn't hear anything but uh i've talked to some local guys around here that they said they've been getting it pretty good but i have yet to be in the woods and listen for them we've been in between rain showers trying to get some stuff done around around the shop but oh yeah they're definitely strutting been wet. yeah i brian told me brian johnson told me the other day that friday morning he drove by a field and there were five of them strutting oh yeah yeah we we were running, oh. some, running fertilizer down south the other day and there was a uh, my buddy sent me a video of some birds out in the field and it's getting there let me um i've got a few questions here that i was asking brian the other day let me run through some of these and see what yeah. kind of where you stand on them um you set up in the dark or do you wait till light i uh i set up in the dark uh, i don't i'm kind of superstitious i don't like to leave my blind out you know over a course of a few days uh i with prior experience you know i've had i've had days where i've set a, a ground blind up out in the middle of the field and turkeys will just they don't care they'll just walk right up to it so uh typically what i do is we have our uh me and my dad and maybe another guy or two we'll head out to the cabin on the friday after work and i'll i'll go up and do you know pull some cards get some more you know most recent information and i'll I'll go ahead and set my blind up and uh that way it's ready for opening morning but if I get to hunt, you know, maybe Monday, Tuesday, I like to take my blind down just for – I one, I don't like getting faded out or anything, but it's just – I it's just a preference for me. And uh, I know where the birds typically go, and it's just kind of – I can get there in the dark and just wait for them. Yeah, makes sense. It, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, nah, in every scenario is different out there. You know, I've had days where – you get up at, uh, you know, you get in the blind at 45 minutes before daylight trying to get a camera set up and, you know, you want to just let everything kind of calm down. But then there's other days where, you know, I don't necessarily get bird activity in a certain area. You know, we have a two acre field that birds, you know, like to do it in the afternoons. You know, mm -hmm. If I decide I want to sleep in or have something going on, I can try to get down there mid morning and just wait it out till, you know, that early afternoon tape, you know, it, it scenario wise, it just, I just kind of go what the birds are doing. I've never, do I, you, 
I'm sorry. Uh, let me ask you this real quick. Do you typically chase them around or do you sit still knowing that they're probably going to be by there? I, I used to, uh, my dad's, we're kind of complete opposites now. You know, he's that old school. He likes to run and gun and he wants to chase them. But I've, I've looked at it over the last few years of getting more into trail cameras and, you know, more food plots. And I use my, I let the rec- uh, my trail cameras do all the work because I know if they're going to be in this plot at a certain time, it's just a matter of waiting. And yeah. with here in Southeast Missouri, there's not a lot of leaves on the trees when it comes around to, you know, there it's still, there's a few trees starting to bloom, but as for leaf wise, you can see so far through the woods. And, you know, if you're trying to, in my opinion, if you're trying to sneak up on a bird in the roost and he can see you from 300 yards through the woods, you know, you'll bump that bird before you even get close to him. And that's, yeah. and, you know, later in the year when the birds get a little tougher, you know, if they're a little bit more vocal or something, then yeah, I can do it with a little bit leaf cover. But I typically like to sit in a blind just for, I, if I know a bird's going to be there at nine o'clock and he's gobbling 200 yards away, if I know he's going to be there, I, I don't want to go and try to bump him off the roost whenever it's just a, I can wait another hour and get him before I try to spook him off the roost. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, when, when do you make your first call? Uh, I locate I mean, calls. You... I, you know, if a bird's gobbling and he's hot, I don't really, I just let him do his thing. And if he's on the roost, I'll give him a few light clucks, putts, you know, whatever, just enough to know that I'm there. And mm-hmm. I don't try to get too aggressive early. And then if, once he hits the ground and he starts to, if he's coming my way, I just pretty much shut up because he, know, he knows I'm there and I'll just let him do his thing. And if he kind of hangs up, then it's, I do really soft calls. And okay. Just enough to make him like, I'm still there, but I'm not coming to you. You're going to have to come up here. Yeah. You don't want him to, I guess you don't make enough calls that you want him to hang up. He wants, yeah. you want him to come looking. I want him to stay curious and come looking. I don't want him just to, you know, I, aggressive calling is there's a time and place for it. And last year was a prime example. I, uh, it was a, it was the very last day of season and I, I'd actually missed a bird the day before in this, in our big field. Uh, bird started gobbling at like 1130 and he, I, I thought he was going to walk right up my gun barrel, but he, he skirted me through the woods. I was facing the edge of the field and he kind of come around the edge of it and, uh, as I made my move, he seen me and I shot, I thought I knocked him down, but I looked out 20 yards off my gun barrel. I shot a tree in half. So, <laughs> so I had, I had to carry that back with me to the cabin. But, but the next morning I got up there and I, I was five minutes late. And these, these two birds were across the field with, uh, 180 yards and they were hot they were gobbling at every they were double gobble triple gobbling anything that made a sound they were gobbling at and I, I there was nothing I could do I had to sit I, I couldn't belly crawl out and set a decoy out so I just kind of hung back out in the woods I was oh seven eight yards off the field edge and uh, I had a hen fly out of the tree 30 yards to my left where I had sat up the previous morning. She flies out in the middle of the field and these two longbeards just pitched out and they were wing to wing, fan to fan with four other hens. And they were, I could just see them over the crest of the hill. They were 180, 200 yards. And I was just thinking to myself, like, I, there's nothing I can do. I have no decoy. I don't, how, how am I going to fight off? four live hens so i just well what do i have to lose it's the last day of season so i just started getting crazy i was scratching leaves and super aggressive calling what i was trying to do was just make that dominant hen mad yeah so whatever whatever she would do i would do that and some and i finally got her to break off with the other the other three hens in tow and those gobblers followed them all the way up and they shot him at 
like 43 yards, I believe. But I was making so much noise that it just – it sounded like a little party up there where I was at. I was scratching leaves. I was in a little bowl, like almost where like a, a old stump hole was. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of down on the ground a little bit. And man, I was just kicking leaves and thrashing and just having a heck of a time. And it worked. It was one of those that typically don't happen like that, but I'm glad it did. What's well, new? Uh, something I haven't heard much of. If you can't get the, the gobbler to come to you, try to bring the hen that, hen that he's chasing to you. I, I call, you know, I when you're sitting there and you haven't heard a bird gobble in a while and you have a lone hen or something come through, and I'll just try to. Whatever she does, I'll do it with her. And I've had I've had pretty good conversations with some hens in the past, getting clucking and just going to town. And you're like, well, if I can get her to do it, surely, you know, if there's a bird within earshot, maybe he'll gobble or, you know, come in silent. But striking up a conversation with a hen is – it's a I, I use it a lot. I try to anyways. Makes sense. I, I get that. Um, let's see um... – how far a shot is too far a shot for you? Uh, you know, I like to, I like to keep it reasonable. You know, forty yards. You know, with it, I shoot at Indian Creek, and it is, it's pretty, it's a damn good choke. Yeah. And, you know, I know that my gun, my load, my choke. You know, fifty yards, I shoot and pattern it that far. I don't necessarily like to do it, but if I had to, I will. But I, you know, I think a good forty yard with, you know, modern modern shells and chokes nowadays. You know, you hear guys shooting fifty, sixty yards. That if you know that your gun's capable of that and you're comfortable with it, you know, that's more power to you. But my my opinion, for me personally, is forty, forty five yards is. I don't really like to go out unless I have to. That's that's about the max. I I know I think I could. I've, I think I could probably, if I had to, I think I could probably pull a 60, but that would be, that would be extreme. I know yeah. I've, I've shot my gun and tried to pattern it that far out and I'm still getting a pretty good pattern. I shoot one of those Indian Creek choke tubes just like you do. And, uh, uh, they're excellent, but you know, you get that far out, you're, you got a lot of, you got a lot of things that could go wrong there. Yeah. And if you, I don't use optics, you know, guys with a red dot or a shotgun scope, you know, if you can pattern the gun with that, I mean, that's, it's a good way to do it. But, you know, I just got the old front back bead and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of variables that can come into play on that. Oh yeah. You could take out a small sapling. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> nice two year old maple. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's see. What, uh, what do you do? What do you do when the hen or when, let's see. What do you do if a turkey, if a gobbler comes off the roost with a hen? Well, uh, just, I mean, really nothing you can do unless you can get him to break off. Uh, you know, it's a waiting game at that point. You know, I've had a, a lot of times where I, if I got lucky one day, a uh, bird gobbled in the dark. I was actually, me and my wife were hunting and uh, we were walking back to the blind and he gobbled pretty much in the dark. And I was like, oh, he messed up. Well, I told her to go back. I said, you know where the blind's at? Just keep on down the road. Just, I'll be, I'll go up there. I'll be back here in a little bit. And I walked up this logger in the dark, and I got it between a tree full of hens, and the gobbler was on the other side of the ridge, and I got I got right in the middle of them. Just so happened, I, got, I don't know how I did it. Walked right within probably 50 yards of these birds. And didn't know they were there, and they started clucking and putting and having a good old time right at daylight. And everything they were doing, he was answering, and he pitched out and flew right up to my gun barrel. And I was like, well, you can't get that lucky every – you know, (laughs) they don't happen very often. But they did all the work for me. But, you know, typically at our place, you know, these birds, they're hinned up right now. I had some pictures today of one gobbler with – I think it was nine or ten hens. So there's really nothing you can do except wait them out but when these hens you know from personal experience when these hens go to nest you know midday that bird's gobbling hard on the roost and as soon as he hits the ground he shuts up i know he's got hens with him and i don't like to do a whole lot of calling because a i don't want to educate him if he is you know if he has been shot at you know neighbors had him or you know just educating a bird 
once those hens leave him, those uh, typically at our place, you know, nine, ten o'clock, those birds that never gobble on the roost will get fired up because now they're looking because they the hens have left him. Now he's he's searching, and that's when I'll start getting a little bit more aggressive. And you know, I've killed a lot of birds after ten o'clock just for that reason. Mm. You know, you get lucky, but you know, we have. Cause you can see like lone hens will come through at eight o'clock by themselves, And it's like, well, they're going to nest. And then it seems like an hour or two later is when these birds will start firing up. Cause when the hens leave him, then he's got to go out and look for something else. So as the season plays on, do you like to hunt the early morning or do you like to wait till that mid morning when you know they're going to look? I sit daylight to one. Okay. You know? Yeah. It, well, yeah, that's that's kind of what I know. I was talking to Brian Johnson a couple of weeks ago, and he's the same way. He'll sit all morning, but uh, he says he ten, typically has more success around that eleven o'clock mark. Yeah, I think uh, the first bird I killed last year, I think he was like eleven forty-five, almost noon. I had a, uh, I had some, I had a hen come out in the food plot, and I was just bored. You know, I haven't heard hardly seen you know, anything for the last couple hours. And I just started, I got my slate call out and started talking and chatting with her and she started clucking and uh, started yelping real loud. And lo and behold, bird gobbled and he was within 200 yards. And I just kept, kept on her and she would just cluck and putt and have a good old time. And she actually called that bird up for me. And, you know, I would have never known he was there because I wasn't calling. I hadn't heard any, hadn't heard a gobble and, a few hours because last year i think it was uh i think i heard 13 or 14 different birds opening morning and i think three or four might have been on us you know that was just with earshot i'm up on a high ridge and pretty mountainous country and you know you can hear those birds are probably good three quarter mile away but still counts because you can hear it Mm -hmm. but uh it was almost dead. Like the that following week, my dad he didn't hear a gobble the next morning, and they didn't do like almost zero gobbling the the next two weeks. And then that last week it seemed like they just fired up and it was like opening morning again. Okay, um, if you could take just one call with you, pot call, mouth call, box call, what are you taking? Uh, man. Trusty slate's hard to beat. Yeah. But Wendy can do it. it I do a lot of mouth natural calling. Uh, I've never learned how to use a diaphragm because I can't figure out how to not make it tickle my tongue. But I learned just, <laughs> just years ago, just started kind of purring and clucking and yelping with my mouth. And I got, uh, I've killed some birds with it, so I guess it works. But uh, windy conditions you know, a good box call, loud, high pitch, you can cut through the wind, but you know, me with the slate, I think it's a lot more versatile. You can, you can get loud and high pitch with it if you need to, but you can also do that really soft clucks and purrs that, you know, for that, that final, that final approach, you know, you can get real quiet and not, you know, not necessarily get so loud a calling where it's, you know, throws him off, but you can, you can really dial it down and seal the deal with it. Yeah, so I'd say a slate call be my, or a, I have a glass call, but that'd be my go-to. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, how do you know when to make a move on a bird, I mean, or when to just hold tight? And I know uh, each bird's is, each bird's his own, got his own mind. So, but I mean, yeah. When do you decide? You know what? It's time to go. Uh, it if a bird, if I have a bird that, you know, hangs up at, you know. 100 yards and i know he's there i can hear him drumming and if he decides to you know they'll get on that ridge and if he wants to move and go down say 200 yards or so and you know get down there and start gobbling then he works his way back you just kind of keep keep middle notes on all right he's now he's back at 100 yards now he's back at 200 once he gets to that furthest point get back you know try to get as close to where he was just at and let him work his way back to you. You know, it doesn't doesn't necessarily work. I've had a I think I've done that one time. That bird was back and forth, back and forth, and wouldn't come. He was just he just hung up. So I just you don't call to him, and once he makes his move and goes away from you, 
do the best you can to get where he was just at. So when he does make his move to come back, you know, hopefully you can cut that distance and he, he'll walk back to you. Okay. Makes sense. In a perfect world, that's how it works, but it don't always happen that way. <laughs> if it was only that easy, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, there's nothing to it. Um, couple more and we'll, we'll call this quits and we'll move on to food plotting. But um, what do you do on a highly pressured bird or highly pressured uh, farm or late in the season? Which, what's your best strategy on birds that have probably been shot at or educated or they've known something's up for the last two weeks? There's a lot more hunters in the woods. I, uh, I try to go quiet. You know, I don't do a whole lot of calling. You know, if, if a bird's not vocal – and if he's already gun shy or call shy, or whatever, it, there's, it's almost impossible. Because I've said it for years. I mean, if a deer could smell like a turkey, or if a turkey could smell like a deer, you never kill one. It, you know, it's just that they're smart enough to where they know it's just like a big buck. If they're if they're gobbling, and every time they get start gobbling, they get shot at, they're going to shut up. So, if a bird's highly pressured and he ain't talking. It's just a matter of getting to a spot where, you know, once again, the trail cameras come in. If he's been in this plot and he's like basically uncallable, just sit him out and wait. Because if you can't call him, he ain't going to come to you. He'll most likely go the opposite direction. It's just sit tight, sit quiet, and then hope to God he walks out. Because, you know, if you make a move on a bird that's not gobbling, he'll be spooked and you'll never even know he was, he was ever there. Yeah. Okay. So I like to sit. I like to sit up and you know sit them out and wait. Yep. Okay. Um, last question: <clears throat> If you could give one piece of advice to a new hunter, new turkey hunter, what would it be? Don't give up. Okay. If if you've gone out and you know practice your calls and you know you you get on a bird and you know you mess up or he called and you spooked that bird, don't get discouraged because it happens to everybody. I told my nephew this uh, a couple years ago. He missed a bird and uh, he got dejected. He was just moving his head, hanging his head around. And, you know, it was like, hey, don't worry about it. You know, like, you know, of course he did shoot three times at it. You know, I kind of had, <laughs> had to bug him a little bit. But <clears throat> I told him, I said, hey, you're not the first person. You're not the last person to miss a turkey. I said, it'd, it'd be all right. And he goes, yeah, not three times. Like you, I said I missed last year. <laughs> you know, so it happens. To everybody, everybody misses, but don't give up. Stick with it. You know, calling and all that stuff. It'll come with pack. You know, with practice. The more you do it, the better you get. And you know, learn from your mistakes. You know, if you if you made a a cluck or a putt when he should have yelped, you know, take mental notes of that. You know, okay, that he didn't. That scenario didn't didn't work out like I planned, or you know make mental notes, remember it, learn from your mistakes, and it did all tie together. It makes sense. I know a few yeah. years ago, a few years back, I had my son out during youth season, and uh, I called in this Jake, and, of course, he, he didn't care. He was going to pull the trigger on whatever, and he squeezed off a shot, and he missed it. And I, I could still see the Jake out there. He ran off, and he was kind of still skirting around. I said, I think I might be able to get him to come back in. Uh, I said, get ready. And sure enough, <clears throat> that Jake stayed out there. But then a long beard come busting in behind us, and he got another shot at it. Now, he didn't kill either bird, didn't touch a feather on either bird, but he got two shots. So, yeah, like you were saying, just stick with it. Just stick with it, and, you know, eventually it'll come together and, you know, learn from your mistakes. That's the only way you're going to get better. All right. Well, that's good advice. Uh, I'm going to hit you with some of these food plot questions now, if you're cool with that. Yeah, come on. All right. Um Frost seeding, what is it, and what should you be doing? What, what kind of seed should you be putting down when you frost seed? Uh, clover is, you know, frost seeding is a really good way to plant clover. Uh, what it is, you know, clover is such a small, hardy seed that, you know, December, January, February, when that ground's freezing and thawing, you know, if it gets below freezing at night and, you know, when that sun hits it in the morning, that ground will open up and, you know, expand. When, if you go out and do a frost seeding, as that ground freezes and thaws, it'll work that seed into the ground because it's so small, you know, you don't, you don't want to plant clover more than, you know, quarter inch, three eighths, you know, deep. 
you don't want you can't just go disc up a field and plant it because if you bury it too far, you know it plant won't have enough strength to pop out of the ground. So frost heating is a good way for that to naturally just work itself down in the ground just a little bit, and then as that sun warms up later in the day, that break you know helps that that seed work its way down and yeah, you know come. Well, about right now. So when that when them soil temps start getting up there in the 40s and 50s, you know that that seed's going to germinate, and then you know it's about the easiest way you can plant clover. It works really okay. works really well. Is that pretty much the only thing you can plant with uh, as far as frost seeding? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know because you know with radishes and turnips, you know I it's okay. more of a fall crop. Uh, you know wheat. Uh, Wheat, I don't really. You wouldn't really want to do it because it, it's not such a hardy seed. If a, if a wheat kernel gets wet, and say you, like we've had here in the last couple of days, you know it was eighty uh, two days ago. Well, a day or two prior to that, it was down in the forties and fifties again. You know, once that seed germinates, that wheat, if it were to turn off cold or freeze again, that tender little brand new shoot that's coming out of that wheat kernel is going to die. So you don't necessarily want to try to do it with that but with the, the clover seed so hard and a little hardy seed it, it's going to take a while and uh it can withstand those colder temps before it germinates okay. um soil samples in your opinion are they necessary okay absolutely uh, because if you don't know what your ground is capable of you'll never know for like what what types of fertilizer do i need lime or you know, a soil sample will tell you that. You can go out and with a soil probe or just a simple hand shovel in whatever size plot you have, maybe it's a half acre, if it's a, a tenth of an acre, whatever you have, you can take these samples and, you know, it will tell you, hey, I need to put, you know, a thousand pounds of lime down or you're, you're high in potassium or because what we used to do back in, you know, years ago before we before food plots really were a thing at our farm, uh, my dad would just grab a few bags of triple 13 or whatever. And we'd just go out and throw it out. Well, if your the ground's acidic or, you know, the, the plant can't utilize the nutrients in the ground, you're just, you know, throwing away money. You may not need, you know, say 200 pounds of fertilizer when you can get by with 50 and you won't know that until a soil sample result says, Hey, this is what you need and this is what you don't need, you know, it will save you money okay. in the long run. Um, how do you take a soil sample and how should you know, how often should you take a soil sample? Uh, well, it's pretty easy. You want it, you know, they, they have certain tools. It's a soil probe. It's a, it's about a foot long tube with a little step stool on it to where you can, you can walk through and basically take a little plug out of the ground and, you want to go six, anything deeper than six inches, you're, that's about max because that's about where your, you know, that's where your root mass is going to be your own. So uh, the top six inches is where you want to get your, your soil from. Uh, like I said, if you say you have a half acre plot and just go out and take five, six random samples, you don't want to just pick a spot that's really green or one that's really bare. You want to just kind of just throw a hat or take a stick and throw it, you know, just however, wherever it lands, take okay. a sample from it. Cause if you, if you pick your, the greenest best spots, it will throw, it'll, it'll give you a, like a goofy reading. Cause that maybe that one, maybe that side of that food plot's got a little bit better soil or, you know, the ground makeup's a little different. And if you do all that from that one spot, you know, you, you need a good average, you know, try to average out the best you can with, uh, okay. with your samples. Um, here's a personal question for you. It's something I've done in the past, and I don't know how accurate it is, but these little soil sample kits you can buy online, or sometimes I think you can get them at seed stores. Are they accurate? Yeah. Uh, I've never used one. Uh, depending on how what they require, I mean, it, it could probably give you a, a good generic reading, but you know, you can pretty much go to any co-op or, you know, some store like that. And uh, a lot of times those little places will be able to take your sample and they can send it off to the lab. Because, you know, where I work, we have guys that come in, you know, they might take one out of the yard or 
out of the garden or food plot, whatever, and we'll we'll send it into the lab. And there's certain way, you know, depending on how much you want to do it, they can say, just tell me, you know, what kind of fertilizer I need. That's my pH. And then if you really want to get into it, they can tell you, you know, micronutrients, and you know, you can really dial it into whatever you know for optimum optimum growing conditions. But you know, a good a co-op, you can usually take your sample into that. And not a, you know, 10, 15 bucks, you know, whatever. And that'll, and that'll give you every piece of information you need, depending on how far you okay. want to go down. Your and you do that every year? Uh, you know, with these, the ag, the big farmers, you know, they can do it about every three years. But <clears throat> I was talking to my buddy, he's an agronomist, you know, with a food plot, you, uh, you know, maybe every other year, or maybe every year, depending on you know, pressure. Cause like, for example, like with a combine, you know, all that's really doing is just going to go through the field, say you're cutting corn and that combine is going to take the kernels of corn, put it in a hopper and it's going to spit out the rest of the plant, you know, out the tail end. So every, you know, all the nutrients that that corn plant actually absorbed, you know, it, whatever's remaining in the leaf and the stalk, you know, that's going to go back in the ground. So you're going to recycle okay. some of that nutrient, you know, as you work at ground in. But, you know, as for like a deer plot, you know, if you've got clover or beans or whatever, that plant is absorbing whatever nutrients it can out of the ground. Well, if that deer eats it and takes it with him, you're not getting it back. You know, they don't, you're not recycling, you know, the leftovers of the plant because they're, okay. they're eating it, you know, unless they're uh, self-fertilizing <laughs> the field for you. That's about the only way you're going to do it. But That makes sense. Uh, <clears throat> is, you know, the deer is going to take the plant with them so you're actually going to you know you're going to lose some nutrients to an extent you know that you know i might need to go put some more fertilizer down every year instead of every other year okay however it plays out um this is kind of piggybacking off that can you explain why soil needs lime and what the lime does to the ph yeah because so if uh say if you've got acidic soil you know, if, if your ground is not, you know, conducive really for growing stuff to where a plant cannot basically absorb, you know, to its potential just because of the, you know, certain nutrients are locked up in the ground. So if you've got acidic soil, you may not be able to, you know, release a certain nutrient, you know, potassium or something that a plant might need because it's locked up. But if you can go ahead and put some lime in, and that's where a soil sample comes in where, if you've got acidic soil, you know, I took my sample and it was, you know, I'm in rock country and I was a, like a five, six or so, five, seven. So I was, okay. I was what's about, what, where do you want it about? What's about perfect? Uh, seven is neutral. So absolute zero is acidic and then 14 is uh, alkaline. So your seven is in the middle. That's your, that's your optimum. Okay. That's basically neutral. So a six, a six, five to a six, eight, you know, that's a good sweet spot, but seven is perfect to an extent, but it's very tough to get to that point. So, you know, a six, a mid six, six and a half is, is about where you want. Cause that's going to be able to let the plant absorb what it, to its potential, what it's going to do, you know, for it's going to absorb whatever it can out of the soil and for its okay. max potential. So that's what, so when lime, you know, if, uh, when you put lime in, it's going to help neutralize it to an extent where that ground is going to be able to release some of that stuff to where a plant can absorb it. And then on the other side, if you've got, say, you know, an eight or a nine where you're, you're more alkaline, where you're, uh, you've got too much lime, you can put elemental sulfur in, which will help bring it more. It'll help break it down to where, you know, make it a little bit more acidic. So, depending on how your soil sample says, you know, it might be, okay, you're at a, you're at a five, five on your soil. We recommend you put, you know, 3000 pounds of lime down to the acre. And then that's going to, cause you can say, okay, I want to, I want to try to hit six and a half and this is where I want. And that's, they give you recommendations on, you know, 3000 pounds of lime or 2000 pounds. So if you don't have a soil sample and you decide that, Hey, I want to, I want to just go spend, X amount of dollars and put three thousand pounds of lime down when you might only need a thousand. 
you know, you just kind of threw some money out the window. So a soil sample is basically a roadmap for what you need. And it's a, it's a, it will save money in the long run, like I said, because you just don't know, but with a soil sample, you know, it tells you what you need to do and, you know, it gets okay. you right there. Um, here's one for you. And I know with your background, you could really get deep into this, but kind of give me a overview of, um, like herbicides and, and what's what does what and do you need herbicides on all food plots and kind of your thinking there uh it it's really kind of what you want to achieve uh i like to spray mine because i don't want competition you know if i'm trying to grow some some beans or you know whatever and i've got a bunch of grass growing in there those every one of those pieces of grass or taking whatever moisture away that could be going to my beans or you know whatever so it's a kind of a however you want to look at it, if it doesn't really bother you and it, you know you don't maybe not have enough to where you want to go out and spend some money on some chemical and you just if you don't have the means for it and say hey i just got it planted let it go it, it's what you want to achieve i i like to have it where i want the best growing conditions that i possibly can you know economically for i i want the plant what i'm trying to grow for my deer is what i want to grow not you know let the let weeds and everything else try to take over i want to try to keep as much competition down for the my okay. food plot that i'm trying to grow like but you know with like i put in a clover plot uh i had a we had the conservation come in I guess three years, four years ago now, we had a we did a cost share, and we had him put in. Uh, we did three, three half acre plots and a water hole. Well, it's kind of weird how our farm lays out because you can be on one ridge, and the soil's fairly rocky, and then I can move over two hundred yards to the next one, and I've got almost zero rocks. Well, one of these newer plots that I had, the, the more I worked the ground, you know, the first year with the does were come in and, you know, we had some roots and uh, we did the best we could pick out sticks, whatever left, whatever roots were left. We just, you know, mm-hmm. did our best to clean it up. Well, I took a disc through it, tried to work it up best I could, you know, just more or less to help level the ground out because, you know, where the tractor dug out of a tree or whatnot, it was a little bit of a dip. So I was trying to bring it in, bring a disc through it and, it was really good dirt for the first year. Well, it started getting some rain on it and, you know, mm-hmm. the rocks started popping through. Well, it's like, Oh, well, every, our, our ground out there, it's kind of bass backwards from how normal farming operations work to where I have to have a two inch rain to go out and work that ground because it's so hard with, you know, some of it's got some rocky soil. Some of it's not. well, after a good two inch rain that ground's soft enough where you know i have a, a little five foot disc i pull behind a, a little tractor that i can really cut the ground and really turn it and it works up well well the more i started working this ground i was pulling up rocks and i just well came to the conclusion i want to do clover just where i all i had to do was mow it it's going to save me hours you know every year on trying to get this ground worked up and so i went ahead and put clover in and now all I have to do is mow it. I ain't got to try to worry about a rain. And, you know, timeline wise, if, if it's a, if it's nice, you know, weather wise, I'm working, but if it's raining, I don't necessarily have to be at work because, you know, farmers ain't what, you know, work in the fields. Then, you know, I have a little time where I maybe I can go do something and take a day off or whatever. But as I got the clover in the ground, I went ahead and, you know, get some grass and I can go ahead and spray, you know, grass killer on it. And it's, you know, something like that to where I want clover growing and not a bunch of weeds and grass. Then I can go in and put, you know, spray with some herbicide on that. But it's really kind of what you, what you plan, personal preference, really. I like it. I like a clean plot, but, you know, no, not everybody has the means to do okay. that or may not have the time to do it. All right. Um, here's one for you. Um, if you're putting in your first plot, where do you start? And what should, steps should you take uh, to get to the point of planning? Uh, I like ridge tops. 
a lot of our plots uh, are on ridge tops just for you know kind of prevailing winds you know if you're down in the bottom you get swirling winds and it's you know pretty tough to hunt but if you can get on a, a higher ridge or whatever and it you you know a lot of our we have a lot of westerly winds it's just I was, a lot of my stand locations are set up for a west wind. We hardly had any easterlies. So all my, you know, a lot of my stands are set up on the eastern edge of these plots where, you know, a west wind's in my face and uh, the wind's good. So you'll get more, consi- you'll get more consistent winds higher up. And, you know, okay. I, I typically That's a like good breeze. point. I never you thought know, really. But, I guess I'm guessing on yeah. ridge types too, you're probably going to get better sun, right? Yeah, you you get the depending on what size plot you have, you know, if you a small little hidey hole plot that, you know, thirty yards wide by twenty yards long, you know, it's just depending on what, what size plot you have, you you'll get a little bit better sun on top, you know, but if you have a you know, big tree canopy it's just doesn't really matter where you're at. But uh yeah, you'll get you'll get a lot better you'll get more consistent winds and then you'll you yeah, you'll get better sunlight. At the same time, sometimes little okay. ridge tops. A little well, rocky this kind of bit, piggybacks off know. that. Uh, what's something good to plant in a small plot in the timber? I do. Uh, I like clover and wheat because you know, for a growing, you know, like I say, if you want to try to put in a bean plot, you know, it's not really economical for you know a, a, a small plot that's. 30 yards by 30 yards you know you're gonna those deer will mow them down so fast that you're just wasting time in my opinion but something with uh you know wheat inexpensive you pretty much throw it on the ground it's going to germinate clover pretty much same thing you know you don't it doesn't take a whole lot of work but once you get you you get in there throw it on the ground it's going to come up and you know sometimes those pots are too small where maybe if you don't have equipment you know can't get a tracker in there if you got a four-wheeler and you're driving in and out around trees and zigzagging back and forth you know it's just kind of a you know something easy you don't have to mess with it and then you know get get some wheat growing get some clover and then you can always come in with turnips and radishes and broadcasting over the top of that for in the fall you want to put as much tonnage out you know as that turnip tops growing put on those big leafy tops and uh you know the more food you can provide on that little bitty plot is okay that's what you want to well let me ask you this again some of these questions are piggybacking right into the other one uh how big should a food plot be can it be too big or too small uh yeah yes and no really uh you know minimum is half acres you know about a minimum like what you read about because you know i went and pulled carts today you know and i had uh a little half acre clover patch and I think there was 11 deer in it and they've had it mowed down to the ground for months now and it gets a lot of pressure and you, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it because they're in there every day munching it down and, you know, something that's going to keep growing a little hardy plant like clover, you know, it's providing, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little clover plants out there, but if you try to do, you know, a bag of beans and, you know, they'll have it ate off in the first okay. night once they start coming up. But but if you get a bit, you know, you're hunting an ag field and you're hunting over a 200-acre a cut cornfield and you're watching deer come out from, you know, the far end, you know, there's really nothing, you know, it is too big because you can't really, you can't shoot that far, you know, however, you know, whatever. So it's kind of hard to set up on something unless you know if you can pattern them and see which way they're coming in and out of. But, you know, our biggest field is, I think I said, what, six acres. And it's 200 yards pretty much for the whole way. But, like, the furthest shot I can make is 300. But I've got stands set up kind of just based off wind directions, really, because it never fails. You, you hunt one stand and then – deer or whatever they come out on the other end of the field and you go like i'll hunt that tomorrow and then you go hunt every that time they come out the other end of the field so <laughs> it's just kind of yeah oh yeah so I, i've got stands pretty well set up you know both sides of it a couple different sides where 
if it is a south wind, I can hunt one side. If it's north wind, I can hunt the other and just, uh, you know, it's not big enough to where I'm not watching deer from half a mile away. I'm watching them from 200 yards and they, they can always feed their way towards me. But, you know, a lot of guys that may not have big parcels of ground or whatever, you know, if you, if you have a small hidey hole plot and that's all you can make, I mean, it's just, you know, put what you can try to put as much food as you can and keep something growing all year. Cause you know, I, t- I try to keep something growing at all times, you know, just to help, you know, feed the deer year round really. Cause I was telling my buddies, like, I'm going to do everything I can to suck all the deer off of you. And I'll put all, you know, put as much deer as I can and there keep them on my side. Um, yeah. Does a food plot need to be tilled or disc, or can you put just plant on unbroken ground? And once again, it just comes down to you know what type of equipment you have. You know, I'm pretty fortunate. I got a tractor and disc. You know, sitting at the cabin, and you know I can go out and work up the field. But I wish I had a no-till drill because you know the more you disturb that soil and you know, you bring up rocks and, you know, it's, if you can no-till a plot where you're not really disturbing the ground, you help your microbes out and everything that's in the soil that's helping break down your other organic matter, you know, but when you till it up, disc it up, whatever, you know, it, it's good and bad. I mean, it, I, I personally have to disc, so it don't bother me none, but, you know, it's just whatever you, whatever you have at your disposal. I mean, some guys that, may just have a four-wheeler and a little pull-behind heart or something that can just barely scratch the ground, you know, just trial and error, find out what well, works. With your you were kind of saying earlier, if you can, like, something like with weed, but, if you can just get to an exposed dirt, it'll usually take off, won't it? Yeah. I mean, if it, you know, out here, like I said, you know, I, I'm using our farm as an example because that's pretty much where I hunt and – I've had so much trial and error stuff to where I've tried to throw weed out on ground that, you know, it's hard packed, you know, had a pretty good rain on and it's sitting up like concrete. Well, you know, sometimes it'll grow, sometimes it won't. Well, if I, you know, have a disc and I can go out there and try to get that ground scratched up a little bit, plant it, you know, that's better. But, you know, like I said, if if a guy, all he has is a a four-wheeler, even a hand rake, you know, scratch that ground up best you can and try to get some seed soil contact. And, you know, it's better than nothing, but try to, you know, scratching the ground, even if it is with a rake, you know, just if that's what you got, just get with it. And, you know, a little sweat equity, because anytime you go out there and bust your butt and do all the work and, you, you know, you're successful come fall and you might kill your biggest buck or first deer and, you know, you can always look back and say, hey, I did that. You know, I, I was out here in July sweating and cutting trees and pulling weeds and doing this. And, you know, I made that. There you go. You know, I, yeah. Here's my 